Hey, I'm Serge. And I'm Peter. And we're with the Future Break Podcast, where we talk about emerging technology, human behavior, and what this means for the future. Find out how Russia is using technology to suppress free speech. And how a school without teachers or tuition is changing the future of education. You can find our show on your favorite podcast player or by going to futurebreak.net. You are now entering the Podglomerate. I, I am an optimist in a lot of ways, and I, I have a, uh, I don't know, I guess I just have a really high opinion of humanity and human nature, and I guess that shows up in my books. The overwhelming preponderance of evidence is that the quality of life for people just goes up and up and up, slowly and inconsistently, but it does go up. So I have a positive view on the future. Oh wait. Yeah, that's that episode's in a month. Um, but it is coming. And that's all we'll say about that for now. Uh, but anyways, I am Kyle. I'm Jeff, and this is Writers You Don't Write. And we but I mean that episode isn't for a month. But today we have a really special one. Who's on the show? We're on a sci-fi kick lately, which I am pretty excited about. Um, I would like to continue the sci-fi kick for as long as possible. But today on the show, we've got Andy Weir, and I am very excited about this. Uh, we got a chance to check out his new book called Artemis. It is fantastic. Um, I dare say it was more satisfying for me personally than The Martian, because I've always wondered what a city on the moon might look like. And this book does a really great job of rendering a clear, realistic vision of what uh, that's all i want to say about it it's a city on the moon you should all go get it and read it as soon as you possibly can uh but today we're going to talk to andy weir about it if you read the martian you know just like how intelligent and how smart and logistical his writing is and it, it, i'm trying to find the right word for it but it's just like precision accuracy when it comes to everything to do with science and it, what i learned from this interview is that that is just andy weir's personality to a t I think my favorite part about, I, it, I don't know, I'm not sure if it made the final cut, but one of my favorite parts is when we started talking about all of the laws that govern how uh, a space colony or any colony that's outside of the realm of Earth might actually ap- or might actually operate based on the laws that currently exist that Andy just knows because he's done so much research. So it was cool to talk to him about what I called space law at the time. Um, and it's just a, a sign of how deep he goes into the worlds that he creates uh, to give us that level of realism that I think it's it's one of my favorite parts of the way that he writes. So it was cool to talk about. It, it is so good. And, you know, we, we know that we don't do this often. We've only done it actually once before, I think. But we actually have a clip from the audiobook, which is read beautifully by Rosario Dawson. And we're going to play that for you now and then get right into the interview. Uh, but the book is called Artemis. You can find it at andyweir.com or wherever books are sold, and you should go pick it up now. And here is Rosario Dawson. I bounded over the gray, dusty terrain toward the huge dome of Conrad Bubble. Its airlock, ringed with red lights, stood distressingly far away. It's hard to run with 100 kilograms of gear on, even in lunar gravity. 
but you'd be amazed how fast you can hustle when your life is on the line. Bob ran beside me. His voice came over the radio. Let me connect my tanks to your suit. That'll just get you killed, too. The leak's huge, he huffed. I can see the gas escape in your tanks. Thanks for the pep talk. I'm the EVA master here, Bob said. Stop right now and let me cross-connect. Negative. I kept running. There was a pop right before the leak alarm. Metal fatigue. Got to be the valve assembly. If you cross-connect, you'll puncture your line on a jagged edge. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm not willing to let you, I said. Trust me on this, Bob. I know metal. All right, welcome, Andy. Hi, thanks yeah, for having me. We are very excited to have you on the show. Uh, I understand that cool. you have a new novel coming out soon. I do. Uh, it's called Artemis. It comes out uh, November 14th. I'm not sure when this will be aired, but uh, so that may have already happened by the time people are hearing this. I, or I not. actually <laughs> think that this is going to get released a day or two after that. So, so congrats on the on the hugely okay. number one so, bestseller, New York Times. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't respecting all, expecting all those riots at the bookstores. It's just an unbelievable. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, thank you. The money uh, yeah. showers. Yes, the yes, money yes, showers money that are showers, happening right yes. now. Um, yeah, uh, it comes out November 14th, and I look forward to literally every single person comparing it to The Martian. You know, we will be sure to you know scratch out all these notes that we have. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry about it. but no, I, I wanted to you know start off by kind of talking about your career because we do that with all of our guests. But but you have like a very uh, I say peculiar, not in a bad way, but in like an interesting way. Uh, yeah. You have a very peculiar way of, of getting to where you're at now. Yeah, um, it was a it was a weird path to publication for me. I mean, um, uh, so. Basically, I had wanted to be a writer all my life, uh, even when I was a teenager. But when the time came to go to college and choose a career, I decided that I'd rather have regular meals and live somewhere other than a box in an alley. So instead of going into creative writing or literature, I went into software engineering, uh, you know, computer science. And uh, I, had a, I had a really good career as a software engineer, and I, I enjoyed doing that. But the whole time, I was also writing on the side. Um, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people know me as, you know, I, I wrote The Martian and that is my first published book, but it's not the first book I wrote. <laughs> I'd been writing for 20 years, getting better. It would have been hard for me to get worse from where I started and uh, just kind of plugging along. And in fact, I took a three-year sabbatical about 20 years ago to uh, just concentrate on writing and try to, you know, write a science fiction book and get it out there. And I, I wrote that book and it did not get published. It wasn't The Martian. <laughs> um, after, after kind of failing to break into the industry for a long time, I finally decided, oh, well, you know, I tried. I don't have to wonder what might have been. I'm going to go back into the software industry. And that wasn't a sad, you know, Charlie Brown music situation. I like software. And... Um, then I started writing for fun. I would just post things online to the internet. Um, I made web comics and short stories, and I also made some serials. And The Martian was one such serial. I'd post a, a chapter at a time to my website as I wrote them. Uh, I say I averaged a chapter every six to eight weeks, and uh, I had an email list, and people would um, people would 
get back to me with feedback or um, you know details of how I got science wrong and um, and I'd fix it. <laughs> you know? And so anyway, it went it, it went well. And um, at the end of it, I was done. And I thought, okay, onward to other projects. But I started to get emails from people saying like, hey, I love the uh, I love the Martian, but I hate your website, which is fair because my website is the most basic. I mean, it's really just like raw text and like blue links that are left justified on a white background. It's very ghetto. And then um, so yeah, people are like, well, I don't like reading this in a web browser. Can you make a um, ebook out of it? So I did. I, I made an EPUB version of it, posted it on my site, and said there. And then other people emailed and said like, hey, I'm glad there's an EPUB version, but I'm not very technically savvy, and I don't know how to download something from the internet and put it onto my you know Kindle. Can you just put it on Amazon so that I can get it through the normal system? So I figured out how to do that. It was pretty easy. Um, you just kind of like. So submit the file. You have to charge at least 99 cents, uh, or at least at the time. You have to charge at least 99 cents, and then they wait like 24 or 48 hours to make sure a human looks at it to make sure you're not posting a bunch of goat porn or something. <laughs> and um, or or if you are posting goat porn, that it's correctly categorized. <laughs> it's labeled but as goat porn. It, yeah, it's labeled. Um, so anyway, once they established that, then they turned it loose and it was live. And I told my readers, hey, you can either read it for free on my website or download it and sideload it onto your, you know, ebook viewer, e-reader. Or uh, you can pay Amazon a buck to put it on your Kindle for you. And uh, a lot of people did that. <laughs> it got around. Also, I'm sure it helped that it was like super cheap. It was the minimum allowable price. And uh, people recommended it to each other and it became one of the top sellers. And it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, I got a literary agent approached me and said, hey, I think we can make a print edition of this book. And I said, okay, you can represent me. And then Random House contacted me and said, hey, we're interested in making a print edition of your book. And I said, well, talk to my agent. And then, uh, <laughs> and then while they were negotiating that, 20th Century Fox came and said, hey, we want the movie option for your book. And I'm like, well, that sounds good too. And everything just kind of fell into place in a magical way that like never happens to yeah, people. Yeah, that sounds like a dream. Um, it really is. It's like it's like it still doesn't seem real to me. It, it's like I I look back on that and it just seems like really like what happened there, and, and it's like it's like a dream came true and it it almost seems like it was just a fantasy I had and you know because that's all kind of in the past now you know, uh, but the <laughs> checks are real. <laughs> Those checks, those are real. I live in a nicer house. I was now. reading an EW article about uh, you know this whole situation, and uh, it said that the whole time you thought that it was a hoax until the checks started coming. Yeah, well, that was with the Random House uh, contract. It's like, you know, I was contacted by them, and they said, "Oh, we're going to give you this big contract. We're going to publish your book and everything like that." And I was still like, "Is this a long con? Is this some group of people?" Because <laughs> if somebody's like offering to make all your dreams come true in exchange for basically nothing from you, it it's like you should be suspicious, <laughs> right? Yes. And these were all just like Absolutely. emails or voices on the phone. I'm like, "How do I really know what this mm -hmm. is?" Right? And you know, but. Then eventually they started sending yeah. checks. So I'm like, well, if this is a long con, they're pretty bad at yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, it's not it's not for nothing either. You know, they're doing uh, a lot of the legwork was already well, done. Well, yeah, I know, but, I know. But uh, yeah, and I mean, they're getting a lot out of it. You know, 
But there, just to be clear, there are a lot of shady organizations out there that say, like, we like your book. We're going to publish it. But we need you to pay for the professional yeah. copy editing on it, and that'll be, like, 5000 bucks. And just a thing to any uh, would-be writers out there, a publisher will – a real publisher will never charge you for anything. They will pay for literally everything, and they'll give you an advance. So – uh, if you think you're being published, but they say that you have to pay for something, then it's a scam. Is this a common scam? Yeah. Wow. I see it um, all the time. I mean, they don't pretend to be a, a different legitimate publisher. What they are effectively is a, is a fancy form of vanity press. So they're not breaking the law uh... or anything like that. They're just having you pay for it. But they portray it as if oh you know we're going through to the finalists and uh you're still on the list and good job and you know it's, that'll be another five thousand dollars yeah right exactly and then they do publish your book but they you know they're like okay well you know well there's congratulations yeah, that's another twenty thousand dollars. yeah right i mean yeah. there there are a lot of and it's it's kind of strange too because i mean publishing has taken on a million different iterations over the last you know yeah since gutenberg and, you know, at one point, somebody would have called that like a vanity publisher where, you know, it, it was like the original form of self-publishing where, you know, you can have a book on your shelf that you give to your friends, but you have to, you know, like pay for all the services that would typically be given to you. And then there are people that are literally just trying to scam you. But but yeah, that I. Yeah, I mean, it's really more the 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 former yeah. of those two is what they're doing, but they portray themselves as like. They, they play on a writer's desire to get published. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of writers don't realize is that what a publisher, what a real publisher like Random House does, isn't so much the, I mean, they do have the physical production of the books, but the main, but the main service they provide is publicity and marketing. And distribution. And distri yeah, right, and distribution, mm -hmm. yeah. So was there, I have a question about the, the stage in between when you published it on the Kindle originally and when it became a print edition in, uh, with Random House. Was there a lot of editing to be done? Did the book change at all when it went through that fundamental, uh, I guess, like a phase change almost? Um, well, uh, once Random House, you know, once I signed with Random House, they did want some changes, but they were fairly minor. I mean, it was just really... It was a pretty quick process. It took about two weeks yeah. of us just going back and forth with, with changes. And it wasn't, there were no big changes. It was like, you know, my editor was is great to work with. And he, he said like, okay, look, this, you didn't really set up the scene in this, uh, this scene here. It's just some people talking and you haven't told us like, are they in a meeting room? Are they in a car? Mm -hmm. Are they like, mm -hmm. so set the scene here, stuff like that. To it, contextualize it, I mean, like Andy kind of showed up with like the golden goose where, you know, he has this story that's already written that has already been through like a lot of different copy edits with people that are, you know, checking in and copy editing him and fixing the science and everything. And it, it's already shown a proof of concept where it climbed to the top of the self-publishing store and, you know, sold like what, 35,000 copies I read at 99 cents. Yeah. It was about 35,000 before, uh, before, uh, you know, ownership transferred over to Amazon. Yeah. Uh, not Amazon, sorry. I mean, Random House. So, I mean, it's kind of like a... There's really no loss there. I mean, like, Random House doesn't have yeah, to do much. Yeah, from their point of view, it's a... Publishers, when taking on an unpublished author, they're rolling the dice. They're gambling. They're gambling their own money on whether or not this story is going to do well. So they... I think this is a pretty good bet for them. They, they look at something and go like, well, 
he self-published it, and it's doing really well. So it'll probably do well in bookstores too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think that's a that's that is a, a, a pure merit-based avenue to getting published, and it's really awesome because without the internet, that wouldn't exist. I mean, I would have given up in my twenties and not ever tried again if it weren't you know. So if it weren't for the internet. So talking about your your website, which I believe is like Galactinet or something. Yeah, galactinet.com. Although I don't really do anything there now because now my stuff gets made into books. Yeah, no, you, you don't need to anymore. <laughs> I, I'm curious, so if it, uh, and cause, and I, I I promise I'm going somewhere with this, but you uh -huh. you it's your yeah. show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you yeah. yes, Jeff. Where are well, you going with this? I, I'm curious, like what the audience was on on the site. You know, like generally speaking. Um. Hardcore nerds, I would say, um, and that's what I thought I was writing The Martian for, a tiny, tiny niche audience of hardcore space dorks and nerds who want to see all the math <laughs> play out. People like me, basically. Yeah. I had no idea it would have mainstream appeal. I still don't know what happened there. I mean, I basically wrote a long series of algebra word problems, and it got made into a movie, and I'm still baffled. Well, I want to talk. So this is the the part of the Martian that struck me, and the, one of my favorite parts about Artemis is that for once in science fiction, it is an optimistic view of what the future could be in the near term yeah. if we pursue science. Yeah, thanks. Like honestly. Yeah, right? no, I um I I am an optimist in a lot of ways, and I I have a uh, I don't know I guess I just have a really high opinion of humanity and human nature. And I guess that shows up in my books. Um, basically, my, here's my argument. Pick. Uh, so let's say I was going to come to you and I was going to say, all right, I have a time machine right here. It can only do increments of 100 years. And it's a one-way trip. Um, would you like to stay here in 2017 or go back in time to uh, by 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, whatever you want? So you can stay here in 2017 or go back to 1917 or 1817 or 1717 and so on. What do you do? Um, I try and make it go forwards. No, no. You can only stay here or <laughs> no, go back. None of that. None of that. Yeah. I'm staying here. Yeah. Everybody says that. Um, now let's say I said, okay, uh, bad news. Um, there's been an issue. Uh, you have to go back. Um, so you have to go back mm. to at least 1917 or you can go back as many multiples of a hundred years as you want. I, I think I would do like, like twelve seventeen or something. Just get weird with it. <laughs> Just oh, for God, the novelty. Yeah. No. Back to the dark ages. I wouldn't last a second there. I feel like 1917 would be a stretch. Right. So what happens is this, this is a good way of looking at it because then you realize every century is better than the last one. Mm -hmm. Like every century is consistently better than the previous one. If I keep extending that and saying, okay, now 1917 is not an option. Most people would go like, mm, I guess 1817 then. They, they want to be as far forward as possible because life is just better the further forward in time you go. There are hiccups yes. and bumps. Like 1943 wasn't as nice as 1923, but 2023 will be nicer than 1923. And so... That's basically my view, is that the the overwhelming preponderance of evidence is that the quality of life for people just goes up and up and up, slowly and inconsistently, but it does go up. So I have a positive view on the future. 
I think the thing with dystopian sci-fi, which by the way, I'm also like really done with in terms of being a consumer. I don't, I don't really like it that much huh. is it makes a very easy world to write because you know, yes. good, good storytelling usually revolves around conflict of some kind and having an oppressive evil government or regime or something like that. And plucky rebels is like a story you don't have to, you know, explain too deeply, right? You're like, People tend to immediately empathize with the little guy fighting the big guy. And, and it, it's an easy way to set up a good, solid conflict and work from there. It's also monumentally overdone. So I just, uh, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love, uh, it's weird. I don't like dystopian, but I love post-apocalyptic so i guess it's the middle ground that i don't like if you're gonna have a messed up world have it be really messed up like give me some mad max (laughs) see that's the that's that was my next logical step it was because there's a practicality to your future um that skips that apocalyptic (laughs) that uh the apocalypse step that i feel like that's where most optimistic future things go is let's have the apocalypse before we can have the redemption of mankind yeah i don't uh, but you skip that yeah step. i skip that step although you can argue that there have been a number of things that people in the past would have considered apocalyptic like i think if you explain to people in the 1500s the events of world war 2 they would probably consider that like an apocalypse like that's very oh, true. Oh, okay. So about a, about seventy million people are going to die, including about a third of the entire Jewish population uh, of Earth. Um, we're going to invent weapons that are about the size of your desk there that can destroy an entire city. Um, yeah, and I'm just kind of touching on the bright spots here. Yeah, no, I mean they would <laughs> they would say like, well, maybe maybe World War II was the apocalypse that led us to some redemption. <laughs> I'm so curious how you how you like came to this worldview because I mean your your parents are I think your mom is an electrical engineer and your dad is a particle physicist and yeah well they're both retired now but yeah they were they were, they were those things and so it just seems yeah. to me like you know that's not really like the avenue that you would find and I, I get it like computer programming sounds like it's the perfect fit but it's not really the avenue that you uh-huh. would expect to find like a, a writer coming from. Well, my mom has a, a great love of books, so um, so it's it's interesting. Dad is a scientist all the way to his to his nerdy little core, right? He's 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 a dork like me. I take after him in a lot of ways, and um, like he loves reading sci-fi. He likes, I mean, he he's a Trekkie. He, you know, he's he's a nerd. Mom did electrical engineering to pay the bills. It was never a passion of hers. Mm-hmm. She's just that was her job. And then when she came home, she'd read murder mysteries. You know, so she was much more into books. Um, and so I guess I'm I'm the amalgam of those two. You know what I mean? And, and what did you grow um, up reading? Because, I mean, the murder mysteries make so much sense after reading Artemis. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't read a lot of my mom's books. Mostly I read dad's books. It's um, later on in life when I got into watching uh, murder mysteries and procedurals and stuff on TV that I started picking up those interests. But um, uh, in terms of... Um, what I read growing up was my dad's sci-fi collection. He had this inexhaustible 
like he had a bookshelf that was six feet tight, six feet tall, three feet wide, and about a foot deep, jam packed full of sci-fi paperbacks that he'd accumulated over his life. Hmm. So I grew up reading, you know, I'm 45 years old. I grew up reading um, science fiction from the baby boomer era. So I'm kind of one generation off. I read books from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so, um, you know, my holy trinity of authors is uh, uh, Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark. Huh. So, that I mean, that's that, that's what I grew up reading. I I uh, was from the generation of like Dan Simmons and and Orson Scott Card uh, and uh, oh sure yeah and I mean it, it was eighties eighties nineties era sci fi yeah novels I guess and and I the mean, longer ones that were deeper. Um, what's funny is like I so. I would say one of the big changes that happened between the kind of juvenile era, the 50s, 60s, to the 80s, 90s era, is that somehow there became an intrinsic link between political ideology and science fiction. Mm -hmm. And there, it, yeah. there always seemed to be some sort of political angle or moral to the story in the later books. And I really don't like that. I would really rather just be entertained. You know. Yeah, I mean the the so, the bean the bean side of the the um, Ender series, uh, Ender Shadow, and all the like books beyond uh -huh. that. It, it's literally just you know what happens during World War Three, and instead of nukes, they have these really smart kids. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> well, so I. Yeah, I actually Xenocide uh, was the last of those I read. So. Yeah, I really loved uh, Orson Scott Card up until I realized, you know, that he's kind of a monster in real life. There's actually another one in the Xenocide. Yeah, the there's Xenocide one more, timeline, right? Coming Sh out Shadow of the Hegemon, yeah. uh, Xenocide, yeah. and um, and Shadow of the Hegemon is the new one, the newest. There's four. There's four of them. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And that one got very strict. Okay. Or maybe it was Children of the Mind. It, it doesn't matter. Oh, Children of the Mind. I think might have been the second. That one? was. That was. Yeah, that was one that I did read. Yeah, I'm so it was it Ender's there. Game, Children of the Mind, Xenocide. And then it was Shadow of the Hegemon. No, I think it was Shadow of the Hegemon. I never got further. <laughs> yeah. Was Xenocide the one that was on New Lusitania with the piggies and the trees? Yeah, and, and then in the fourth one, the, the yeah, whole conflict that. was... Uh, uh, I love that series. They yeah. were based, yeah, it was amazing. And the conflict becomes, like, should Ender, like, solve the... They, they finally found a new race that's, like, sentient, like the buggers The Descalada, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, should... should uh, Ender basically had the decision to, like, decide to wipe them out or to, to help them grow. And I won't give it away, but... Uh, okay. But it's great. Well, um, on the subject of Card, I actually don't know much about his personal life or views or anything like that, but I do like a lot of his books. Yeah. I actually try not to get too deep into the personal lives of the authors I enjoy for that exact reason. Cause if I, if I find out that they're that, that I have some core disagreement mm -hmm. with them or, or something like that on, on some political issue, it makes it harder for me to enjoy their stories. Yeah. Um, because of that, I never talk about politics. I, I have no, you know, uh, in interviews or anything like that, I don't, I don't want people to know my political views, and they're nothing shocking, by the way. Like if I detail them, you'd probably just fall asleep. I'm <laughs> not very, I'm not, I'm not any kind of wing, <laughs> but um, uh, I just don't want people thinking about that. 
uh, it, it, so it really ruins a story for me if I know that the author has a political axe to grind because I know that the universe of the book will conspire to validate that opinion. Mm-hmm. And it cuts off a bunch of ah. potential directions the plot could go and removes my – it affects my suspension of disbelief because I'm like, oh, here's the thing that could happen. No, that won't happen because I know the author wouldn't like that to happen. Well, no, uh, so I wanted to I want to tie this back to your own writing though, because I wonder if there's no so one of the one of the 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 I think the best things about your writing style is the practicality of it and how believable everything seems to be within the worlds that you oh, create. Um, and I wonder if there is so to to learn that you don't write that much about the political side of it is interesting because I wonder if there's no room for the way that politics does eventually affect science. So thinking in terms of the moon colony, there was a little bit of reference to the politics of how it might all operate. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, just, are you talking about the stuff with Kenya or? Yeah, the KSC yeah. and uh, I mean, even down to some of the, the Brazilian cartel and I don't want to go too far to ruin anything for anybody, but there, there is enough there And the prolonged lesbian you scene, did you feel idea? like that yeah. was, uh, <laughs> that 30 you know, page long sex scene, do you think that was uh, a bit too much or? No, Right, it was it was a bit much next to the yeah, goat. I mean, yeah, the just goat like porn. Not enough gratification there. Well, goat sex <laughs> in one six gravity is very different than your normal run of the mill Earth goat sex, and I wanted to make sure that the reader understood the distinction. <laughs> now, seriously, folks, no lesbianism or goat sex in the story, or at least no graphic lesbianism. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, what the hell were we talking about? As soon as we start talking um, about goat sex, I forget everything else. Politics. Politics yeah. and oh, practicality, and, and I want to add identity to that too because uh, that was identity? that was very okay. that was very strong in in the story. Okay, well, in terms of politics, I was trying. Um, I didn't, you know, I don't get into politics, but I did need to explain how Artemis came to be, and I needed, you know, I needed. I couldn't just ignore the existence of Earth. There had to be some mechanism by which <laughs> Artemis exists, right? <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. so that's where I came up with the Kenya Space Corporation. And it's actually an idea that I think would work fairly well um, for an equatorial nation. And I picked Kenya, but it could be Kenya, Ghana, Brazil, Ecuador. Um, an equatorial nation could probably draw the global space industry into itself by making space industry friendly policies. And the reason for that is now we've reached a point in um, technology where we've reached a point in space research where technology is no longer the limiting factor to like commercial or private space travel, it's policy. It's very difficult to get a launch license in the US. You have to follow all these rules. Uh, A lot of them are hilariously outdated. And the reason we have it is because we signed the Outer Space Treaty. And what I think needs to happen is the Outer Space Treaty needs to be amended and adjusted or just updated to modern technology. And um, don't get rid of any of the stuff that everybody likes. Like, no, you can't militarize space. Keep that there. No, you can't lay claim to sovereign territory anywhere other than Earth. Keep that there, too. I mean, these are major, you know, the, the core principles of the treaty, leave it alone, but change some of the wording so that you don't have to have a giant FM transmitter sucking up all the power of your batteries. You can use the much more efficient, modern, you know, uh, communications techniques that have been developed. Anyway, that's just mm-hmm. like one of a billion examples. Um, but basically, so I thought, hey, if an equatorial nation said, all right, we're going to make 
it really easy for you to do what you want in space. We're going to have a lot of non-interference and we'll even give special tax breaks and yeah, you can go ahead and be a union busting asshole, whatever. Just bring your industry into our country and mm -hmm. be on the equator uh, because uh, for those who don't know, the equator of the earth is like, you know, it's moving faster than the poles. For instance, the rotation of the earth is about at the equator, you're going about 500 meters a second. It takes about 7,800 meters per second to get into low Earth orbit. So you're talking about a one part in 15 of velocity that you just get for free by launching from the equator. That's why everybody tries to have their launch facilities as close to the equator as possible. The United States, we put ours in Florida, way down, as close as we could get, you know, and, and so yeah. on. Japan's launch facility is out on an island that they own, you know, close to the equator. <laughs> So I honestly think that this is an avenue by which a country that, you know, maybe doesn't have a strong economic base could develop one. And so think, I decided you... fictional Kenya did that. <laughs> hey, Jeff, guess what time it is? 9.23 p.m. It's advertising time. Oh, hell yeah. It's time to talk about vitamins. Yeah, let me tell you, the only time I really talk about vitamins is when my doctor tells me that I'm so vitamin D deficient that uh, it might actually warrant a trip to the emergency room. Your doctor hasn't actually said that, has he? No, but he did threaten uh, to put an IV in my arm the next time I was there to make sure that I had actually gone outside and gotten some sunlight. It must suck working in a cave. I work in a cave. There are no windows. Well, boy, do I have a solution for you. Uh, can I can I solve my problem in my cave, from my cave? You sure can. So if you go to takecareof.com, you can take a quiz to get your personalized vitamin recommendation. You can literally say, I want more energy, I don't get enough sunlight, I'm sick all the time, and it'll give you your own daily vitamin recommendation. They'll send it to you in a nice customized package. And right now, thanks to the great audience that we have for writers who don't write, you can use offer code WRITE. W-R-I-T-E to get 50% off your first month of care of. They don't even care that you live in a cave. Oh man, this is going to be... Do you think they have something that will allow me to avoid leafy greens entirely? I mean, I, I'm sure that they do, but I don't... <laughs> Are we there yet? <laughs> Has science saved me from salads? They are expensive nowadays. Kyle, how many books do you think you read for the show? I mean, it's like one or two per episode, and that's not including some of the background research that we do. I think I might have a solution, though. Kyle, have you ever heard of this new company called Serial Box? I have not. Serial Box publishes serialized fiction created by teams of critically acclaimed and best-selling writers. Serials are released through the Serial Box app and website and third-party retailers in weekly installments in both ebook and audio formats. Each episode takes 30 minutes to read or an hour to listen, and each serial runs for a three-month season. It's a bunch of episodes written by the same writer, or it's all different writers? So it's great. They use the Hollywood-style writer's room, and they actually have a team of writers writing each serial. So the, they'll work together writing the outline, and then a different author will write each episode. So it's TV show format for fiction. Yeah. It brings the best of both worlds, from TV and books and audio, and puts them all into the same experience. Right, well, how do I sign up? Head to serialbox.com today or download the app, and you can get 20% off any first season of any serial with the code WWDW. That's an oddly specific code. Weird, right? Do 
do you think that there's like a real life situation where Elon Musk gets in touch with uh, not necessarily Kenya, but like some random nation in South America or near the equator and, and tries to actually do this? Well, um, it's very difficult if you've started in the U.S. to stop being part of the U.S. Uh, space-wise, because there are all these rules and regulations about um, called ITAR that are basically, if you want to do any sort of space stuff in the U.S., everything related to you, your company, the people who works there, the subcontractors, everything has to be American. Hmm. Uh, with very few exceptions. Ah. And so once you've started that down that course, you would have to literally just ditch everything and start over because all those other people also like your, you know, engine bell manufacturer, subcontractor, whatever, also wants to remain ITAR compliant so that they can work with other ITAR companies. But it, so if they started selling their stuff to someone who isn't, then they lose their status and they can't sell to all the other things. You see what I'm saying? It's it's very messy. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, you could almost call it like a space guild in that. I was going to say, should we, can we just talk about, like, we'll just spend the rest of the, the podcast talking about space yeah, law. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so if you found a way to work around the space laws, that would be a major economic advantage. And so the idea of the Kenya Space Corporation is they, the country made a bunch of laws and then founded that company. And then a lot of other companies all over the world, corporations, it's a conglomerate. They all invested in it. And so it got a huge amount of starting mm -hmm. capital and was able to ultimately be the dominant force in the, in the commercial space industry. And it's, it, it drives the formation of the moon base on uh, uh, the moon base well, of Artemis. A moon city, right? A base implies moon that city, it's like a government thing or something like that. It's just a city. And the way KSC makes its money is they build the pressure vessels and the domes and they manage the air and they'll, you know, they take care of life support and stuff like that. And then they rent out the properties inside and uh, they don't sell property ever. They only rent it. And so just they get money based on how many people live there. And then you do what you want. So you want to rent a lot and set up a, you know, a, a, a burger joint there. Great. If you want to live there. Great. If you want to make a, you know, a brothel. Great. We don't, we don't care. You're paying us. That's all we care. <laughs> So how conscious uh, were you when you were designing this ecosystem to try and stay away from the politics that would drive a place like this or the, the sort of politics that created it or the way the world would respond to a company like KFC? Well, I tried to I, I steered clear of politics entirely. I tried to make it all about um, uh, just pure naked economics. That's all it is. It's like every, everyone involved in this is there to make money. That's it. And no one's pretending otherwise. Right. It's just, it's mm. like, hey, we want to make money. Hey, you like making money? I like making money. Let's do that. You know, and there's, <laughs> there's no one there that's there for some sort of ideology. Everyone's there for business. It is true. It's kind of like you brought, you, uh, you brought like the the Rust Belt to to the moon, and it makes sense because everybody there is you know part of it, the industry of of like surviving on the moon. But in addition to that. And because of that, you also had all kinds of various uh, like kinds of people there. Um, and it seems like the identity factors of each of these people just kind of existed in the midst of, of Artemis, this, mm -hmm. you know, this city on the moon. And 
I mean, was that an intentional thing? Because, I mean, it was so interesting to me to actually bring in the culture, like, once you had all of this there for, like, such an economic reason. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, I mean, it wasn't like I set out to do that. It's just emergent behavior of human beings, right? Um, Artemis, uh, the, the culture that develops in that I thought would be emergent in a place like Artemis is based on, like, America in the first half of the 19th century during the main immigration influx. You know, and that's what Artemis is experiencing. It's it's pretty much the same as, as America was in the 1800s. It's like, look, you come here, you do what you want to do. No one's going to take care of you. And if you can afford to get here, you can live here. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much it. <laughs> um, yeah. And and you're on your own, man. If you if you if you come over here and start to starve to death, well, you can leave, whatever. We're not going to take care of you. <laughs> and it's funny um, because I, I'm just realizing now that like all of the characters within the story have adopted that same mindset. Yeah, it's a frontier town, um, uh, but also the economics of it, I based it largely on um, resort towns in the Caribbean or in the tropics in general. And you see a lot of this in resort towns where it's a, a, a single point of entry economy. In other words, all the money that's coming into the city comes from a single industry, in this case, tourism. And so if you look at a Caribbean resort town, you'll see these really nice opulent hotels, casinos, whatever on the shore. And then behind them, there'll be the more austere living conditions of the people who live and work there. And that's just how it is. I'm not saying I'm not making any commentary on it. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. That's what happens when you get a bunch of humans together to do this. Everybody's mm -hmm. there because that's their job. That's what they do for a living. And really, uh, economics always drives everything. Uh, people don't like to admit that, but economics drives everything. People, I mean, e even imagine you're in love with a woman, but have a, a wonderful job offer on the other side of the country. Almost everybody takes the job and then does a long distance relationship. They don't stay with the person and then try to do long distance working because the company won't let you. Economics drives all the major, major decisions of our lives. Um, how much of the research that you had to do for this book was about economies and the way that Quite they Quite a lot, actually. Did, and another thing for me is I, I'm really interested in economics. Like, it's a really interesting thing to me, how it works, how it plays out. And I always have to remember that other people generally aren't as interested as I am. So I need to remember not to just, like, get too heavy on the economics stuff. But to me, it's a science like any other, and it has emergent behavior like any science. And it's just really interesting, the stuff that happens. And, I mean, the main plot events, without giving away too many spoilers, the main major plot shifts and events and the kind of prime mover of Artemis is the economics of the city. One thing I've always admired is the the world of Mad Max, okay? And let me tell you why. Yes. Because it's the only, like, post-apocalyptic or massive, like, you know, setting that I've ever seen that actually has a fully functional and well-developed economy. <laughs> like, you got, you got the Citadel, which produces water and food. You've got the bullet farm, which produces bullets. <laughs> you've got Gas Town, which is sitting on an oil reservoir, so that's your energy industry. And you've got Barter Town, which is uh, uh, a trade hub, and they also produce pigs. And it's actually this fully functional economy, and all these entities trade with each other. In fact, that the Mad Max Fury Road is about um, what starts out as a trade route. <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap, the wasteland which is what it's called, is a fully functional economy. <laughs> but I guess a lot of people don't look at things that way. 
No, I mean, I think the reason that you're successful in your writing is because you look at things differently than, than most everyone else. I mean, it's 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 like a, a vision that a lot of people wish that they had. And, you know, and I do want to ask you, uh, first off, anybody listening who has not picked up their copy of Artemis should go and do so because this book is brilliant and, uh, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice for not reading it. Um, oh, thanks. Uh-huh. But you didn't actually set out initially to write this book after you wrote Artemis, or after you wrote That's The Martian, true. right? So That is correct. Yeah, so tell us about that. Well, um, after The Martian, uh, of course, Random House was like, all right, what's next? And I had been working on a book called Zhek, Z-H-E-K, for quite a while, uh, for a few months. Actually, I was writing chapters of Zhek before I was even done with The Martian. And I said, well, I've got this, and this is what I'm working on. I'm very excited about it. And they said, all right, great, get to work on that. And they made, we made a contract and I had you know a year to write it and I got an advance and all that stuff. And then I was working on it and I worked on it for a year. I got 70,000 words into it. And then I, then I was like, <laughs> and for, for those of you out there, um, for reference, um, The Martian is just over 100,000 words. So that's how much I wrote. And I realized this is not a good book. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd made a lot of <laughs> mistakes in the basic premise of it and the basic decisions I'd made related to storytelling. And uh, it, first off, it was a muddled mess. There were way too many subplots going on and they were all kind of necessary, unfortunately. So basically the plot was too convoluted and too complicated. Um, I was 70,000 words in, which would probably be about 200 pages or so of a paperback. And uh, was still in the first act. Like, so this was going to be some monumental tome that people would just throw away because it would just be way too much to read. I had gotten away, f I, I had completely strayed from my uh, hard sci-fi roots. So in other words, it was a soft science fiction story. It had faster than light travel and aliens and telepathy and all these other things. So I'm, I'm I was definitely outside my wheelhouse there. It was just not feeling right. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized it wasn't working. And um, it was also, it's a story that was like really, really epic. Like it's like just massive, massive things going on just all over the world. And that's very hard to tell. <laughs> a story like that is hard to tell. You can either have a million characters or show a sort of myopic view of like calamitous global events through the eyes of like one person. I had a real tough time with it. So ultimately, I talked to my editor and I said, I think I want to push the big red reset button. I think Jack is not working. And the editor was like, okay, well, we're <laughs> going to want to know what you want to write next. <laughs> and so I had a couple of ideas, one of which was Artemis. And I'd been working on Artemis for a while, just the, the science, the, back, the background of it, the, the world building, not the story. And um, they liked that idea. And so they went ahead and changed uh, my Jack contract to be a contract for Artemis. And they gave me another year, which is great. And I'm really, it was a painful, difficult thing to do, but I'm really glad that, that we did because I am so much more happy. I'm so much happier with Artemis than I would have been with Jack. And is, is Jack done for, forever, you think? Uh, that particular story is done forever. I'm not going to do that. However, there are elements of it that I think are actually pretty cool. 
that I that I may steal for other stories. So and, and pretty original, I think. So I think I might use it for parts. Hmm. <laughs> interesting. So that's a very interesting yeah. way of saying that. Well, I, I wanted to also ask you about um, the first story that I actually ever heard about you from was not The Martian, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you had a viral hit before The Martian. Uh, I did. That was called. We're talking about the egg, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I would love to hear the the background on that one. Well, that was a short story that I wrote um, back in 2009, and it's a thousand words long. So that's it. It's like a page and a half if you print it out, and it's a short story about a guy who dies and meets God. Um, I won't give spoilers beyond that. Anybody who wants to know about it can read it in like five minutes. So I'll just leave them to it, right? Um, there's also like a hundred YouTube videos that have been. There's made a about whole bunch. Story. Yeah, people have made their own YouTube videos, and if you just Google the egg, Andy Weir, you'll get like everybody's reposts and re-reposts and reposts, and other people claiming that it was written by a collective like round robin of 4chan, and I don't know. There's <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, oftentimes the the name gets lost with it, but yeah, I wrote it. And what's weird about that is I just wrote it in like 40 minutes one night and did like one copy editing pass and posted it. I didn't put a lot of thought into it. I didn't think it would be epic in any way. I didn't think you, it you would put be... It on your, you put it on your website, right? Yeah. On my, actually, back okay. then, I didn't even have the website set up yet. I posted it to my, yes, for the dated reference, live journal account. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. The, fir- the first viral live journal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's probably other ones before that. Um, but yeah, I posted it to LiveJournal, and uh, it got around. And it took a while, but it started to get around, and then it kind of blew up in popularity. It got, I think, it ended up front paged on Reddit a, yeah, a, a few times. It, it there was a period there where one way or another would end up on the front page of Reddit every couple of weeks, like there was this cycle, <laughs> and um, it finally calmed down. But yeah, I, I, I mean. I'm pretty sure that's been read by literally millions of people. Yeah. I mean, I found it on Reddit. I think it's because uh, part of its success is probably because, well, it's kind of a, you know, a head rush kind of story. It's like, ooh, you know, there's a reveal at the end that I, I thought was pretty cool. And then um, also it's just a very digestible story for the kind of Internet era. It's the sort of thing that, you know, people don't like to read 25 page short stories anymore. Um, but they are up for reading a thing that's just like five minutes. It's the sort of thing they can do while they're spo- while they should be working. Um, it's the sort of thing you can repost in its entirety in a Facebook post, that sort of stuff. And so I think that its kind of digestible nature, I guess, is helped helped it get around. How was the? How did you deal with the response to that sort of thing when you saw it start kind of picking up? Oh, steam? I thought it was cool. I said. Um, I said, hey, uh, glad you guys liked it. And I did a Reddit AMA, I think. And, and I said, hey, well, if you guys like my stuff, go to my website and read my other stuff. I, I mean, I ended up accumulating a lot of regular readers thanks to the egg. That's great. I mean, and it is kind of that perfect story where it's it's so simple and it's something that, you know, you've probably thought of before. But the way that you present it all, like, just keeps on going through your head over and over and over again. And oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's great. So, I always have to tell people my standard caveat because I get a lot of strange emails. Um, just, I don't believe in the egg, right? I don't think that that's true. <laughs> that's a necessary uh, statement, huh? It is a story that I made yeah. up. This is my, <laughs> this is my worldview. 
Well, um, this is who I think. It is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I I am uh, curious what is next for you if you've thought that far ahead. I have. <laughs> um, yeah. What I would like to do, uh, I I would. Uh, so I'm kind of holding off for the moment, but uh, what I want to do is write uh, a, another book that takes place in Artemis. Yes. Um, so I, I've actually written a few thousand words into it already, and I think I've got a good a good solid story in mind for it. But I'm kind of trying not to get too excited about it until I see the response to Artemis. You know, if it tanks, I'm not going to write a sequel. <laughs> Um, but I'm excited about the idea, and it's not um, it's it's not serializing. In other words, uh, Jazz is not the main character of this next book. Interesting. Is it mm-hmm. in the same timeline? And you... uh, yeah, same timeline. It takes place like a, a, a like three years after the events in Artemis. You continue to come back to the idea of serialization. Uh, yeah, is that... well, it's not quite serialization. What I'd really like is for Artemis to be. Uh, a shared setting among many books that I write and the books don't have to be about the same set of characters just this is a different group of people who live in Artemis and there may be some overlap with this other story so I don't know if you guys are into fantasy that much um, but like Terry Pratchett's Discworld is an example of Mm -hmm. what I would love Artemis to become I'd like it to be like hey I can tell whatever story I want I just it all happens in Artemis and yeah. then the setting just becomes so concrete and just gloriously real. Um, there's a, there's a short story writer who I'm totally blanking on that all of his stories or hers take place in the same town. Huh? Do you know what I'm talking about? Colin Barrett? No. No. Well, yes, but but no. Um, it's somebody from like a hundred years ago. Okay. But it, it'll come to me. I I'll, I'll send you a note. But. I mean, but beyond that, like, you also serialized The Martian, and I I believe that you had another series that you put out on Tapas, which was an app, which I don't think is around anymore, all about, uh, like, the whole point of the app was serialized fiction. Oh, um, well, yeah, I, uh, I mean, are you talking about the Moriarty stuff? I think so. Okay, yeah. I'm blanking on the name of it. It was called just Moriarty. It was a series of short stories that I wrote that um i think so i think this is it a series of short stories that i wrote um that are about james moriarty uh sherlock holmes's nemesis um when he was younger and setting up his criminal organization and uh i that was just me screwing around i had fun with it because i um i i told it i tried to emulate conan doyle's writing style so like you know it was a glory it was a lovely spring afternoon when i happened to come upon the residence of mr you know william longfellow and were i to have known that this would be the beginning of a day you know it's like that whole manner of speech and um sherlock holmes stories are all told first person by watson right he's the narrator um in all the doyle stories and so um, I have the narrator of the uh, Moriarty stories is Colonel Sebastian Moran, who is Moriarty's right-hand man in the actual, uh, in the real Sherlock Holmes stuff. Colonel Sebastian Moran is Moriarty's number two. So I have it written, at this point it takes place in the past, so it's Captain Moran, and he's the, he's Moriarty's kind of Watson equivalent. And Moriarty is like this, he's kind of a detective, but also a consulting criminal and <laughs> this 
I had fun with it. I did not take it seriously. <laughs> so when you're looking to set up your uh, your your next entry into the Artemis uh, world, how do you how do you deal with the the interlocking pieces that exist in the book that you've already written? Oh well, they're great because they give me stuff to to springboard off of. Um, so it's it's you know. Uh, like, okay, well now, well, I, I can't talk about it too much because I don't want to give spoilers to Artemis, but yeah, I mean, it's, all that is there. It's a little bit later. Um, there's another bubble <laughs> that got built. Um, yeah. And, um, so all that stuff is there. The other th the thing that's hard for me is I've never written a sequel before. And one thing is Artemis is a kind of a complicated setting and I don't want to explain it all again. Right. Right. Um, so I'm just kind of doing like little one paragraph recaps here and there. So I think I'm, I think I'm kind of, I, I didn't really make a conscious decision on this, but I've kind of come there is that I'm going to say like, you know what, this is going to be very difficult if you haven't read Artemis, <laughs> even though it's not a direct sequel. It's you like, it. if you want all the backstory on the city, then <laughs> read the first book. Well, how will you, how do you think you're going to are you concerned at all about how building this larger world might draw you into trying to focus more on the political aspects of it now that you've established the economic functions? Uh, no, I don't think there's any danger of that. I really dislike politics. <laughs> like it's a frustrating topic yeah. for me uh, as it is for a lot of people, but I don't get the joy from arguing about politics that a lot of other people do. And so it's just, it's very easy for me to avoid it because I really don't like it. <laughs> I think I, from a practical standpoint, I find uh, as someone who tries to write and fails frequently, I'm wondering what happens if you ever find yourself erring towards that area when you're writing. Like when you're sitting down and trying to flesh out ideas for how Artemis might function, you feel yourself leaning a little bit too far in one direction. What happens? Uh, I try to, uh, I mean... If it's completely fictional politics, like should we allow the Zorplaxians to <laughs> live on Fermion 9 yeah. and it's not some sort of transparent analogy, then, I mean, I guess it's okay because it's just conflict. Mm -hmm. But when it has any sort of direct linkage or, you know, overt or, or um, what do you call it, uh, overt or... Um, representative i guess or uh symbolic i yeah. guess of an existing real political issue then i'm like whoa no <laughs> like that's just like at the planning stages that's a conflict that i don't put in okay interesting so i, I i'm curious uh you know the, the reason that we bring authors onto the show is to discuss like the one story that they've always struggled to tell and we've gone over a couple that you know, have been kind of difficult for you, but, but there's a third one that you sent over in your email. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was wondering if you, if you might, you know, want to talk about that at this point. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have considered in the past writing an autobiography um, because just kind of at the top of this uh, broadcast, we were talking about, you, you said, you, you said it yourself that the, my path to success was really bizarre and interesting. And I think a lot of people, would find just my life story to be interesting and you know i'd tell it with my own first person smart ass story so that that is a potential that i thought about the problem is um that if i were going to tell my life story i would ultimately be talking about friends and relatives occasionally in a negative light because 
I, you know, I didn't have an easy childhood. And so if I got too deep into that stuff, I would end up offending people that I, that I love. And I don't want to do that. So I'm just not willing to work on an autobiography until a whole bunch of people are dead. <laughs> so maybe, maybe in, you know, <laughs> in my far later years, if I live for a good long time, I might tackle that, but not, not, not now. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's like literally how the show was born. Yeah. Was, you uh, mentioned that, you know, yeah. And, and I mean, it's, uh, it's a problem that I feel like a lot of people struggle with. And we've had writers on the show that just say, you know, screw it. You have to just do it and like not care what anybody else thinks. But well, for I mean, that just seems like kind of a, a strange like route to take to me. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's um, if you have had such a bad family life that you're now completely estranged from them and you don't care if they're hurt by what you have to say or you're just really angry at them and you kind of want to hurt them, then that's an avenue that I imagine would work. But that's not how I feel. Like, I I love my family, and I don't really want to air, air the dirty laundry of, of, our, of our past while people are still alive to be offended or have their feelings hurt by it. Mm-hmm. Have you considered the Mark Twain approach of uh, just specifying that it be published 100 years after your death? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I could always just write it and then sit on it until, <laughs> you know, until people are gone. But I, uh, I don't know. But you have sequels to write. I have sequels to write. I got other stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Andy, you know, thank you so much for joining us. Where, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, well, they can find me. Uh, my main site is andyweirauthor.com. Um, I'm uh, Facebook Andy Weir and um, uh, Twitter Andy Weir author okay and your new book is Artemis, Artemis. out November 14th yep everybody should go pick that up what he said that was Andy Weir author of Artemis and The Martian you can find him online at andyweir.com thank you so much for being on the show uh, we want to thank Crown for giving us the selection of the audiobook that you heard in the beginning of the show. And thank you to Rosario Dawson, who has no idea who we are. Thanks to Ben Sound, who did the music that you heard in the middle of the show. You can find him online at bensounds.com. We want to thank Brian Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. He did the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour. We also want to thank Care Of. You can head to takecareof.org and use code WRITE, W-R-I-T-E, to get 50% off your first month of vitamins from TakeCareOf.org. We want to thank CerealBox. Make sure to head to CerealBox.com today or download the app and get 20% off of any first season of any cereal with code WWW. You can find us online at www.podcast.com or at thepodglomerate.com. We want to thank The Podglomerate and make sure to head to the website to find your next favorite show. Uh, you can find us online also at WWW Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we would love to hear what you thought of this episode. We don't pay to advertise the show, so hearing from you is is really the only way that we know if you like our work or if it's effective. So, so definitely let us know, and thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Uh, we're actually going to be taking a month off, so you're not going to see an episode in your feeds in two weeks. Uh, we have a really, really special episode coming up in one month. 
Uh, the reason that we're taking a month off is because Kyle is moving to LA to pursue I'm his- I'm moving across the country. He's gonna pursue his dream of being a failed television star. Uh, and I am gonna enjoy a lot of turkey while he travels. So you'll see us in one month. Uh, we have one hint for you. And we're not going to tell you anything else other than it's going to be a really special episode. If you picked up on what that hint was, tweet us at WWW Podcast. Thanks again to Andy for being on the show, and we'll see you all in a month. Podglomerate, a sonic universe.